0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And so if you have a Bible, it would be great if you went ahead and got one out and turned to Mark 6. If you don't have a good Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath every three or four seats, and that would be our gift to you. You're more than welcome to take that with you if you need a good Bible. So Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. So if you want to open that up and set that on your lap, that would be a a good thing. So let let me start and kind of preface um, this text uh, by going back all the way to the 7th grade. Now those are scary days for anyone, right? So in this particular day as a 7th grader, um, our church was doing one of those old-time revivals. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Where you bring an evangelist in, they preach for like three or four days in a row. And uh, so we're in the middle of of one of these revivals, and uh, I'm there with my crew of friends. And honestly, I'm not expecting a whole lot to happen, right? So I'm just kind of there, hanging out, doing my thing. And the best way I could describe what happened on that particular night is God ambushed me. Like he jumped out from behind a bush and got me right there as a seventh grader. I'm sitting over kind of in the right side of this auditorium. And I mean, God tracked me down, chased me down. He found me. He melted my resistance. He won me over. And in response to what God did in my heart that night, man, there was this moment of of me coming alive to God where I responded to him in faith, trusting that Jesus was going to be the thing that paved the way for a relationship with God. That, that all of my sin would be credited to Jesus. All of his perfect record of righteousness would be credited to my account. And now I am adopted into the family of God. It was the moment that God saved me as a seventh grader sitting in that little auditorium in a really old church in a revival. That, that moment happened. It, it's what theologians would call conversion. Now, conversion's a great word, isn't it? I mean, conversion has the idea of you were this then something happened called conversion, and now you're that. And that's exactly what it means to be saved, isn't it? That's exactly what it means to enter into this relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Is you were this, now you're converted, and now you're that. Like you were a a son of wrath, a child of wrath, but now you're like a child of God, His mercy, His affection. You you were like hell-bound, now you're heaven-bound. There's, you know, you were you know in death and now you're in life you were in like eternity away from God now you're in this this you know converted now now you're in this moment of having an eternity with God so a a conversion is a great thing isn't it it is a beautiful thing Do you remember that moment when that happened for you if you're in Christ do you remember that moment when God reached down sort of doing stuff in your heart and and out of an expression of faith in Jesus you held up your hands and said God save me that that is a great moment now, and I want to just kind of take the turn on this now and, and make this point. Conversion was never intended to be the end of the Christian life. It was intended to God to, to be the beginning of the Christian life. I can. the moment that God reaches down in your heart and remakes that thing and you respond in faith and you are converted, you are saved, you are now a son or daughter of his, at that moment he begins to call to us and invite us into this daily dependence upon him, into this deep and rich life with him, into what you might call like the life of faith. But as soon as you're converted, God begins to call you into that, this, this daily dependence, this trust in God, this life of faith. Now, it's, it's been my experience that for most people, it's one thing to trust God with your eternal life, and it's a whole other thing to trust God with your daily life. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's one thing to be saved by faith. It's another thing to walk by faith. It's another thing like in the midst of your daily life, your pains and your pleasures, in the midst of all of that, to have this deep life with God, this trust in God, this dependence upon God, this life of faith as you're walking with God through all of that. That's a whole nother thing to, to do that. Maybe you could think of it this way. There is something in all of us, even sons and daughters of God, there is something in all of us that is still resistant to that that hates the idea of living by faith. It's not natural to us. It's, It's not something we would naturally do on our own. I love how author and biblical counselor, Paul Tripp, he describes this thing in us that wars against faith, how unnatural faith is in us. He says it this way. Faith isn't natural to us. Doubt is natural worry is natural, fear is natural, discouragement is natural, anxiety is is natural, looking over the fence and envying the life of somebody else who seems to have it better than you, that's natural. Can we all agree with that? That that feels much more natural than walking by faith, doesn't it? Uh, He goes on, waking up in the morning with a knot in the pit of your stomach because you beat yourself up all night with an endless catalog of what ifs, that's natural. Bringing God into the court of your judgment and questioning God's goodness and love, that's natural. Wondering if God's promises are really true, that's natural. But faith isn't natural for us. And my experience is that's right. I think the Bible would say that's right. There's still something that wars in us against this deep, rich life of faith with God, but we are daily depending upon Him for everything that our soul needs. There's something that wars against that. Now, the good news of the gospel and of God is that for his sons and daughters, he is relentless, relentless in his pursuit of cultivating and building up and bringing out this life of faith in us. He's relentless in that. Like that's, a high, that's, that's at the top of God's priority list. It's personally for you bringing out a deep, rich life with him. This life of faith, this daily dependence, this daily trust in him. God is all about doing that. Now the question is, how does God do that? In light of we're converted, God saved us, brings us into the family. In light of him calling us into this deep life of faith with him that's living by faith. The question is, how does he cultivate and bring out that life of faith? How, how does he do that? Now this passage is going to walk us into one way that God does that. It's not, it's not going to say everything that God, you know, this passage isn't going to tell us every way that God brings about this life of faith, but it's going to show us one way and I would call it maybe even the primary way that, that as we live in a fallen world that God brings out of us this life of faith, this daily dependence, the way he cultivates this in us. So read along with me here. I want to show you just two big things out of this text. So starting in verse 45 says this immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Beseda where he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray and when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them now let's just stop here and kind of get our bearings on the story. Just answer two quick questions about it. First of all, what, what is happening to the disciples? Let's answer that one first. W- what is happening? Now, th- the short answer is they find themselves in the middle of a storm on, on the s- sea, right? Th- this is where they find themselves. And this should like instantly recall back, if, if you were here a few months ago, we covered Mark chapter 4, when yet again they found themselves in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And in Mark chapter 4, they are literally terrified for their lives, that they are scared that they are about to die, the storm is so bad. Now, in this story, it's a little bit different in the sense that, that they're not screaming out for their lives yet. They're not in the panic that, oh my gosh, we may die any, any second, although that could happen soon for them. Right? But, but they're not in a panic about dying right now immediately. R- really, what they're in a panic about in this story is just that, that this storm has made their life absolutely miserable, It's not that they're in fear of death. It's just that their life has been made absolutely, terribly miserable because of the storm that they're in right now. So just look at some of the key words here. Look at verse 48, how Mark describes it. They were were making headway painfully. You might just underline that word painfully. For the wind was against them. In other words, their their cells were down, the oars were out, and with every ounce of energy in them, they are digging those oars into the water and they're rowing. And they're rowing and they're rowing. And they're looking around realizing that we are not making any progress. As a matter of fact, we are losing ground. Every ounce of energy is being expended rowing this boat, and yet we're still losing ground. Put yourself in the story. What you would feel like in this moment, it would feel hopeless to you, It would feel like there's no way out of this mess to you. You're drenched by rain. You're being beaten by the wind. Waves are crashing into the boat. You're rowing with everything you've got and it's not working. Life is not going the way it's supposed to go in this moment. And and verse 48 gives us kind of this time clue on on how long they've been doing this. It talks about the fourth night of the watch. And that would be between 3 and 6 a.m., Now, assuming they left right after dinner, after the feeding of the 5,000, the passage we were in last week, assuming they left after that, it would mean this. They have been rowing for somewhere between 8 and 10 hours, caught in this storm, hopelessly rowing, losing ground as they do it. This is the situation. It's not that their life is in jeopardy. It's that right now their life is absolutely miserable. This is the situation. Now, that's where they are, kind of the situation they're in. Now, here's the second question. Why are they in the middle of this miserable question, or this miserable situation? Like, how did they get there? I think it's always important to ask when you see crazy things like this happening, like, why are they there? Was it disobedience that maybe got them there? Was it um, just a foolish decision that got them there? Why are they there? Verse 45 gives us the answer. Immediately, he, talking about Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Who told them to get in the boat? Je- Jesus told them to get in the boat that was going to go out into the sea in the middle of the storm. Okay, so let me just make this big picture point here. I want you to see this, that Jesus is behind the storm. All right, when, when you're talking about this storm and the situation the disciples are in, I want you to see with a lot of clarity that Jesus is behind it. Okay, that, the language in verse 45 is really forceful. That the word it says, it translates in, in, into English, he made his disciples. But that's a really forceful sort of phrase that he's use, using. It's not like, um, hey, we, you know, we don't mind getting in the boat. That's not the, how the, the phrase works. It's more like this, get in the boat now. That's the phrase. It's forceful. Like Jesus is looking at them and saying, I'm not giving you any other options. All other options are off the table. I want you in the boat and I want you in the boat right now. And they find themselves in the middle of this miserable situation, not because they have disobeyed the commands of God, but precisely because they have obeyed the commands of God. Okay, we're seeing the situation here. They are in this storm. Life is absolutely miserable because they have obeyed, because they have been perfectly obedient to what Jesus has just told them to do. Now that begs the question, why in the world would Jesus, who is kind and merciful and loving to us, why in the world would he ever command us to do things that he knows are going to lead us right into the middle of storms? right into the middle of adversity, right into the middle of trials and trouble to make our life absolutely miserable. Why would God ever do that? Now, let me just reframe the book of Mark for you for a second. We talked about this last week, that the big thing Jesus is doing in the gospel of Mark, these 16 chapters, is living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sin, being raised from the dead on the third day. That's the big thing. That's the overarching thing that Jesus came to accomplish. But that's not the only thing he's doing in the Gospel of Mark. He is also taking this band of 12 followers that he's called to come and and walk with him and follow him. He's also calling them to come after him, and he's building into them this life of faith, this daily dependence upon him. This is what he's doing. So you you remember in chapter 1, he he starts to call them, like, come, drop your nets, follow me. And by the end of the book, in in Mark 16, verse 15, he looks at these same disciples, and he says, now I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. You're going to be responsible for moving this ball forward, this this mission of mine forward. But to get them from chapter 1 to chapter 16, like to to get them to the point where he can not just say, come and follow me, but now I'm going to turn you loose with this mission, To, to get them to that point, it took him building and cultivating in them a life of daily dependence upon him of like this actual deep communion, this rich relationship, where they are living by faith in Jesus, trusting that Jesus really is enough to satisfy their souls. So this, is, this is the subplot. This is one of the things he's doing throughout this book. And here's the truth as you look at the Gospel of Mark and what he's doing in these disciples. The truth is, is that Jesus, he, he knows more about these men than they know about themselves. He loves them more than they love themselves. I'm not saying a lot. He loves them more than they love themselves. He knows every obstacle in their heart that is blocking them from a life of faith in him. He knows every one of those obstacles. And here's what he is saying in this passage. I am sending a storm to smash down those obstacles to make a life of faith possible in you. Maybe you can say it this way. I love how Paul tripped the language he uses to describe this. He, he says it this way. Jesus is taking them where they haven't chosen to go in order to produce in them what they couldn't achieve on their own. Let me say that one more time. This is what's happening in this storm. Jesus is behind the storm. They are in the middle of this miserable mess because Jesus sent them into the, miser- you know, in the middle of this miserable mess. So they are there because of Jesus, their obedience to Jesus. And why is that? Paul Tripp, Jesus is taking them where they haven't chosen to go in order to produce in them what they couldn't achieve on their own. This is why they're there. There are things happening right now in the midst of this storm that they could never achieve on their own, that they would never ask for on their own, that they would never pray, God, will you please do this? That They would never pray for these moments, but God is taking them where they would never choose to go, never ask to go to accomplish in them the things that they could never achieve on their own. They would never be able to do in a different way. So this is what's happening in this moment. And I love the way author Paul Tripp, he uses to describe this, this one word that I think would be helpful for us just to develop a vocabulary of this. Listen to how you describes these moments in our life where God takes us where we wouldn't choose to go in order to produce in us what we can't achieve on our own. He calls it uncomfortable grace. This is what God is doing in this storm. He has sent them right into the middle of it, and this storm is uncomfortable grace. It is God achieving in them things that that they would never even know to ask for right now. It's God producing that in them by taking them to a place that they would never ask to go, they would never choose to go, they would never willingly sign up to go. It's uncomfortable grace. Now the truth is, is that God doesn't just use uncomfortable grace on the disciples, right? God also uses uncomfortable grace in our life. It's not just a reality in their life, it's also a reality in our life. The truth is, is that God will take you where where you don't want to go, you would never sign up to go, in order to achieve and produce in you the things that you could not produce and achieve on your own. See, this is not just how God cultivates a life of faith for the disciples. It's how God cultivates a life of faith for you. And aren't we grateful that God is that zealous and loves us that much to do that for us? That he's that relentless in our life. He looks at our life and says, I am so passionate in in my love for you that I will not allow you to keep going on this trajectory. I'm going to insert things like storms into your life to take you on a much different trajectory. Namely, a life of faith in me. Really believing that I can satisfy the deepest parts of your soul. That I will do whatever it takes to convince you of that. I mean, just think about the storms in your life. Trials, trouble, what God has done in them, what God has produced in you through them. I mean, wouldn't you say that uncomfortable grace has worked in your life too? That this is, these are some of the things that God has used in your life to bring about more faith, more dependence, more trust. So I think one of the things that we we, um, can get right into the middle of in in these storms in our life, and we're in the messy middle of these storms, in the boat, everything's rocking, everything seems unsteady and unstable in our life, I think we had the tendency to cry out to God, God, where is grace? Where is it? And God is looking back at us saying, you're in the middle of it. And I love how one, one pastor put it. He says, it's not the grace of release. It's not the grace of relief. It's the grace of refinement. Uncomfortable grace. See, uncomfortable grace is not grace that we like to sleep on. It doesn't feel like a soft pillow, does it? it? It doesn't necessarily like go down like, you know, our throat and into our stomach in a nice way. It's got a lot of edges on it. But, but it's grace nonetheless. It is grace from God to begin cultivating in us this deep, rich life with Him, this dependence upon Him, this, this life of faith. Now, I I just want to give you a warning because we we all have to be very careful in the middle of storms in our life. When we find ourselves where the disciples did in this moment, we all have to be really careful that we don't convince ourselves that we're in the middle of this storm because of God's inattention and lack of faithfulness. Because see, that's what our default mode is naturally going to go there. The reason we're right here is because God is like taking his eye off of us and his hand off of us. And that is not the case. That these storms in our life, in the disciples' lives, in your life, it is not because of God's inattention and unfaithfulness. It is the direct result of his zealous love for you. See, God actually loves us more than we love us. God actually has bigger plans for our life than we even know to have for our life. And God is not satisfied with letting us live here when God wants us to live there. He's not satisfied with it. And so he will send uncomfortable grace as an act of love for you, zealous love, passionate and personal love for you to get you moving in a different direction in your life. See, this is what's happening with the disciples. They are in the middle of this storm specifically because God, Jesus, he has orchestrated the storm for them. He, He is the one behind it. Now let's answer this question. I want you to look down at verse 51 and 52 here. What is God doing in these disciples in the midst of the storm? Now, now, there's a lot that we could talk about as far as the details of what he's doing, but I just want to point out one thing. Look at verse uh, 51, the, kind of the last part there, into 52. And they were utterly astounded. And by the way, you can be astounded and still have a hard heart toward God. You can be amazed at something and still not be expressing faith in God. They were utterly astounded. And then look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts, and this is an interesting phrase, their hearts were hardened. For they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, now that's a stinging accusation against the disciples here, that their hearts were hardened. Now, when it's talking about hardened hearts, um, if you just read the, the gospel of, of Mark, you're gonna see that to be in the category of like the people who have hard hearts is not the category of people you wanna be in. Th- these are the people that are resistant to God, these are the, the people who have obstacles in their life, barriers in their life before God. They are stubborn. They're prideful. They are stiff-arming God. They hear what they want to hear about Jesus. They see what they want to see about Jesus. Maybe you could say it this way. The, the people who have hard hearts, they have built their life on something other than Jesus, and they don't want to move that life off of what they have built it on. They are firmly set on what they have built their life on, and that's not Jesus. And they're not up for a change of location. That they are just fine with where they have built their life. Now, we talk a lot about um, idolatry around here. And and this is really what what Jesus is getting right down into, into the middle of with these disciples. That they have built their lives on something other than Jesus. And he has sent a storm into their life to show them the foundations of their life. Okay, now I want you to think about this. Here's one of the things that storms do for all of us in the room trials, trouble, tribulation. Storms have a way of showing us what's underneath our life, what what our life is built on. See, there are things that you will never know about your heart as long as your life is 75 degrees and sunny. Right? You'll never know about it. You'll just never see parts of your heart as long as life is going well. But as soon as you get into a storm and that storm begins to squeeze your heart, you begin to see what's inside of you, don't you? Now, that can be an ugly picture for a lot of us, isn't it? But hence the reason that he is sending the storms into their life. He wants them to see what is in them and what is not in them. He wants them to see what foundation is under their life and where they need a change of location. He's wanting them to see that. Do you remember the story in um, in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says that there's two men? And and these two men are building their house on two different foundations. If you look at the house, you would think both houses are like sound and stable. But he says there's two different foundations underneath of these houses. One is built on sand and one is built on rock. And do you remember what happened when the storm came? What happened? That The house that was built on sand came down. And and this is what Jesus is trying to expose in them. He's trying to expose where they have built the house of their life on sand, on idols. See, an idol is anything that you are banking on in your life to give you the sort of significance, the sort of satisfaction, the sort of security that your heart craves. See, an idol is anything other than Jesus that you are building your life on to get the deepest things that your heart needs. That's an idol. And Jesus in his grace in this moment Is sending a storm into their life To show them where they have built their life On the shifting sands of idols See, see, this is what he's showing them here See, if you build your house on the sand of success Then the storm of failure will destroy you See, this is what he's showing Where you've built your house on something other than me When the storm comes, your house gets wiped away if you build your house on the beach of beauty, the storm of aging will destroy you. If you build your life on the sand of career, the storm of a recession, are you straight up getting fired, will swamp you, won't it? Amen. If you build your relationship on the—if uh, you build your life on the, on the sand of relationships— That could be a spouse, like your marriage, a child, a friend. If you build your life on the sand, uh, the idol of relationships, then the storm of rejection will swallow you. You ever been there? If you build your house on the sand of money and the next purchase and possessions, then the storm of loss will swallow you. See, and Jesus is in his grace. He's meeting these disciples right in the middle of their idolatry and he's using this storm to expose where they have built their life on something other than him. Where their life is built on the shifting sands of idols. See, th- this is why Jesus has said, hey, get in the boat, knowing that that boat was going to take them right into the messy middle of this storm, because Jesus had some things he wanted to do in them in that storm. Okay, now l- let me kind of turn the, the, to the other side here. So we've got, w- on one side, we've got Jesus is behind this storm. But let, let me turn to the other side here. Now look at verse 47. We're, we're gonna see that it's not just a Jesus that is behind this storm. We're gonna see that Jesus is actually about revealing himself in the midst of this storm. It's not just a Jesus that's orchestrating it behind. It's Jesus saying, I have like brought this storm into the middle of your life so that I could show you something about me in this storm. Not just something about you, namely your idolatry and where you built your life on something other than me, but, but I want you to see something about me. Okay, watch this in verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, let me just make a quick comment about he came to them just think with me for a second if, if Jesus' primary goal was just to relieve their suffering in the middle of this misery in the storm if that was his primary goal he didn't need to come to them to do that all he needed to do was stand on the banks of the shore say a few words and the storm goes away right so, so we can just see right off the cuff that it's, it, Jesus is about more than relieving their temporary suffering he is about their transformation isn't he See, it's, it's, it's bigger than Jesus saying, hey, let me just make sure we remedy the situation that you're in. He's, he's actually saying, I want you to see things about your Savior that right now you don't see. That I'm orchestrating this storm, so not just so you'll see parts of you, but so that you will see more of me. See, suffering has this unique way, storms in our life having this, have this unique way of not just showing us what's inside of us, but suffering ha- like poses this unique opportunity to see and experience more of God. To see and know more of God. To develop more of a life of faith. To develop more daily dependence upon God. Trust in the thick and mess of your life. See, suffering poses th- those sort of opportunities for us to, in the midst of this suffering, to see God in new and profound and fresher and bigger ways. So there's two things he wants them to see in the midst of this suffering about him. Two things. So pick it back up in verse 48. I just want to walk you through two things that Jesus wants them to see in this moment about him. Verse 48, And he saw that they were, make, they were making uh, headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then it says this, He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke and said to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Let me just show you two things that he's wanting them to see here. The first one is he wants them to know that, that he is God, that Jesus is God. That's the first thing he wants them to know in the midst of, of this storm that they're in the middle of. And, and watch how it goes. Let, let me just point out two phrases to you that uh, one of them is really interesting when you look at it on the surface. He, the first one, look at in verse 48, the last phrase, he meant to pass them by. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, so did he like get Caught? Like, what's, what happened here? Like, is he just, does this seem to take a little wider, you know, wider angle around these guys? But, but the point of this, that phrase, he meant to pass them by, is not that he meant to go unnoticed. It's actually saying that he meant to be noticed. Okay, so, so think with me here. The, the, and commentators are really quick to point this out. The guys in this boat are all Jewish men. And Jewish men know their Old Testament by heart. They have a lot of it memorized. They know the Old Testament scriptures. And that word, pass them by or pass by, when they would have heard that word, they would have instantly have thought about some Old Testament scenes. Let me give you one of those. Exodus 33. I don't know if you remember this moment, but—, but Um, Moses is pleading with God in this moment for his presence not to depart from the people of Israel. This is right after the whole golden calf thing, this huge moment of idolatry. And so Moses is pleading with him, don't take your presence from us. And then Moses pleading with God says, please, will you show me your glory? Will you show me a picture and a view of yourself? Will you show me you, God? God. And in verse 19 of Exodus 33, God responds and says this. And God, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now in the Greek, that same word, is tra- that, that phrase in Exodus 33, and now in Mark 6, it's translated the exact same way in the Greek, to pass by. It was like it was Mark trying or Jesus trying to make this connection for them. That the same God who passed by Moses a few thousand years ago, that same God who showed his glory to Moses is the same God who is walking on this water to you. This is who I am. I am God. But then there's one other statement here. There's a second phrase. It's in verse 50. So when when Jesus comes out to the disciples, they're terrified. They are literally scared to death when they see Jesus. And and look at how Jesus responds to them. And I love just the tenderness in this, in verse 50. He said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You see that phrase, it is I? You might underline that. It is I. Three words in English. In the Greek, it's two words. I am. I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament— one of the biggest moments in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 3. Um, this is when Moses, uh, Moses is walking by a bush that catches on fire, but it doesn't consume the bush. And all of a sudden, God speaks out of this burning bush to Moses. Now, that's a day for you right there, isn't it? So he, God speaks out of this bush to Moses, and he basically is telling Moses, you're going to go back to, to Egypt, and you're going to free the people of Israel out of the grasp of Pharaoh. And Moses, in response, says, who— what, who am I going to tell that the people of Israel and, and Pharaoh, who, who am I going to say sent me? And you remember how God responds to, to Moses? Here's who you're going to tell them sent you. I, I am sent you. See, I, I am was, was the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. It's the big picture name of God, Yahweh. It's the God who, who create, like, just spoke in Genesis 1 and everything was created. It was the God who spoke and the Red Sea parted. It was the God who, who is powerful enough to rain down plagues on Egypt, to free the people of Israel. It is that God. This is, the, this is the I am God. He, he never was, like, he's always been. There's never a was God right? There's never like a will be, like changing God. He is I am, same yesterday, today, and always. This is God in the Old Testament, and Jesus is looking at at these people in the boat, these little disciples, and he's saying, using the exact same word, I am in Exodus 3, I am in Mark 6, and he's saying, do you know who I am? I am. That's who I am. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I am God. I'm the same God who spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. He is now speaking to you right now, right here as you're in this storm. Okay, now let me me bring this home. Why is it important that Jesus is showing them that he is God? You know, it's interesting how God treats us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of storms in our life. And, And let me tell you how God does not treat us. He does not minimize our suffering. God does not come to us and say, hey, you know what? It's really not that bad. He he doesn't come to us and say, hey, you know what you really need to do? You just need to grow up. You just need to suck it up, man up, whatever you need to do, just get get up. That's not how God he, He doesn't come to us and minimize our suffering. He doesn't come to us trying to convince us that it's not that bad. That's not God's approach to suffering. You know what God does to us in the midst of our suffering? He doesn't minimize our suffering. He maximizes who he is in our life. Are we seeing that? In the midst of our suffering, what we really need is not to just kind of feel like our suffering isn't that big of a deal. You don't believe that in the midst of suffering, by the way. It's a big deal to you. Even if it's not a big deal to someone else, it's a big deal to you. But see, God does not come to us trying to minimize our suffering in the midst of it. He comes to us in our suffering and here is his intent in our suffering to maximize who he is and has promised to be in our life. Can I just say that the number one thing you need in the midst of suffering is not to be relieved of your suffering. The number one thing we need in our suffering is to have a new and fresh view of the God that we serve. That's what we need in our suffering. See, this is what Jesus is doing in the midst of the disciples suffering. He is coming to them and he is saying, hey, it's not that your suffering isn't that bad. It's bad. You're in a storm. You're rowing for your life. It's bad. It's miserable. I get that it's miserable. But let me tell you what you really need right now. More than being relieved of your misery, you need to see me in a bigger way. See, one of the reasons that God sends you in a boat into a storm is so that he can come to you in that boat and show you who he is. To show you a bigger view of him, so that he can cultivate in you a deeper, richer life with him, so that you will actually be convinced that if you bank on Jesus, that you're banking in a good place. He's trying to convince them of that. Now, here's the second thing he wants them to see. Look at verse 48 again, and we're going to be done with this. We'll we'll start to land the plane here. It's not he doesn't just want them to see Jesus doesn't just want them to see that he is God. He also wants them to see that God has come near to them in the midst of this boat, in the midst of their suffering. Not just that he's God, but that God has come near. Look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, you might underline this phrase, he came to them. Now, aren't we glad that God does that in the midst of the fourth watches of the night? That God comes to us? walking on the sea. Now that's a jaw-dropping way to come to us, isn't it? He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And look at this last phrase in verse 51. And he got into the boat with them. And he got into the boat with them. Aren't we grateful that we have a God who, in the midst of our suffering, gets into the boat with us? And the biggest thing we need in the midst of suffering is to have a bigger, fresher view of God, one, and secondly, To know this big I am created everything, owner of everything, in control of everything, I am God. That that big God, to know that that big God has come into our suffering and entered into that suffering with us. More than you need relief of your suffering, you need to know this about the God who ordains it. That he is with you in the middle of it. That he has crawled into that boat with you. See, really what God is doing in this this passage with the disciples in this moment of their life is he is orchestrating these events to show them really what the heart of the gospel is. He's showing them what the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our messy lives, Jesus, or God is willing in the form of Jesus to enter into that messiness and rescue us even in the midst of it. To be with us even in the midst of it. And listen, even when we're still disobedient, even when we're still rebellious, even when like the disciples, our hearts are hard against God, that God in his grace, in Jesus, will come in the middle of our boat and jump in even when we don't want him in. Even when we just want the, the, you know, the sea calm. He is willing to jump into that boat with us even when we're a mess. Not just that we're in a mess, but we're the mess. He is willing to jump into that boat with us. Can I just tell you parents in the room, you, you know in those moments where you feel like all of your kids have gotten together, conspired with Satan on how to make your life miserable? In those moments where you have to go down the hall and break up another fight, you know in those moments, that the biggest thing you need to know in those moments that you have to remind yourself of is God is in that boat with you. How about marriages in the room? You know when you're— You know that moment when you said, I do? Okay, that that was a beautiful moment, right? But for a lot of us, our marriage from that point forward goes like this sometimes, goes like that other times. And you know when you're in one of those moments where— When you said, I do, you just didn't think it was going to turn out like this, be this painful, have to walk through this moment with this person, have to go through this sort of betrayal, this sort of being sinned against. When you're just in one of those moments, can I just say what you need more than anything else in your life is to really know and really believe that Jesus is in that boat with you. That he's not going to leave you, that he is, he is with you in the middle of that. How about when you're in the doctor's office and you get that report? When you feel like, your, your physical body is just doing the nose dive, right? When you've never felt as weak as you feel now, you're really worried about what the future could hold, in that moment, can I just say what you need more than anything else in your life is to really believe that God is in that boat with you. How about the moment where you lose your job? Or you just can't provide for your family like you want to provide. And you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. You don't even know how to communicate this to your family. You're just in one of these moments where you just don't know what to do with your life. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Can I just say what you need more than anything else in that moment? What you need more than anything else is to know that Jesus is in the boat with you. It's not just that, that he is God, but that God has entered the boat with you in the form of Jesus. So we need more than anything else. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what, this is what Jesus is doing in their life right now. He's showing these disciples that in the midst of your storms, I will get in that boat with you. I will never leave you for the rest of your life. Paul Miller is a guy that wrote a book called A Praying Life. Um, I I think it's like probably the gold standard on prayer. I, I love it. And one of the things I love about this book, and really books like this, I love picking up books and reading books, that when I, when I put it down at the end of reading it, I am convinced that the guy that wrote that book knows God. You know what I'm saying? Like those sort of books. So you can read a lot of books that they have a lot of tips and techniques, all that, but you're not convinced they actually know God by the end of it, you know? But this is like one of those books that when I finish it and put it down, I am like sold that this, this guy knows God in a way that I want to know God. And a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance, um, I'm in this little cohort of pastors, and we're just trying to work on becoming better pastors. And so uh, we flew up to Philadelphia and met with Paul Miller. And uh, it was just a, it was a great conversation, really interesting, several different parts of it. But, but one in particular, he, he walked us through what, what he called just a terrible seven-year season of his life. He had approached what he would call in his life a powerful guy. So I don't know if it was a guy over him that could fire him, whatever. But he approached the guy about some sin that he had seen in his life. And when he did that, the guy turned on him. He kind of consolidated his power, got all of his troops around him, and tried to really squash Paul. And, uh, and I love the way he described what this seven-year season felt like of working through all that. He said, "I felt like, I felt like God had put me in a dark room. And in most dark rooms, there's like human doors that you can get in and out of those rooms with, you know? Like you can go knock on this human being's door, and they can open up the door and say, oh, I've got the resources and what you need to pull you out of that room. And he said, but for this seven-year season, all of those human doors, God locked them. They're all locked. There was not one door I could get out of this room, you know, through, Seven years in this dark room. And he said, you know what? The strangest thing happened in that room. God actually met with me. Locked in that room, dark, seven years. Like God found me. Like God showed up in my life. God showed me that he is God and nothing else is. God shows, showed me in that moment that he doesn't leave us in rooms, that he actually comes into those boats with us. Now, and this, I love when he said this. He said, you know, a praying life, this book that is just drenched with communion with God, of, of just knowing God, he, he made this comment that apart from living seven years in that dark room, a praying life doesn't exist. I don't have the sort of richness and depth in a walk with God apart from that room. And can we just see that those dark rooms, these stormy boats that God puts us in are ways for us to get more of God, to see more of God. And we have to be, and let me just end with this, we have to be utterly convinced that in the midst of these dark rooms, these stormy boats, that God will not leave us. That it's not his inattention and his unfaithfulness, but his zealous love that has put us there. We've got to be convinced of that. And If you need proof of that, all you need to do is look to the cross of Christ, right? This is where we see that God, God's promise is good, that he is not going to leave us there. I, I love in Matthew how the story ends. You remember it? It's kind of a dramatic ending to it. Peter looks at Jesus and starts to walk on water. And you remember when he kind of starts looking at the waves, instead of Jesus, he starts to sink. And what, is, what happens when he cries out for help with Jesus? Jesus grabs him by the hand and saves him, doesn't he? But if you just start reading forward in the Gospel of Mark, here's what you're going to find about Jesus. That there was a moment when he was in the boat, in the middle of the storm, and he's sinking in the middle of the boat of God's wrath. And he's reaching out, crying for help, but you know what? His father doesn't rescue him, doesn't save him. He sinks in the middle of God's wrath for you and I to convince us. He was lost in the middle of God's wrath for you and I to convince us that God will never lose us. That God will always be with us. That God will always, that I am, will always be in that boat with us. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.